I want to start there with a little, a little interaction for us, all right? You have to respond properly to this. Hello. Hello. Not yet. <laughs> That's good, though. <laughs> Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepared. I always wanted to do that. Okay. And some of you are very confused at the moment. Um, that's a line from a movie. As my kids and I like to say sometimes, uh, my name is Juan Pablo Montoya. Uh, you killed my father, prepare to die. You, you never have any doubt what his intentions are, do you? Uh, he shows up and he tells you, you killed my father, prepare to die. I'm, I'm here to kill you. Uh, the passage we're looking at this morning, uh, Jesus is surrounded by people who are confused about his intentions. Uh, and so a group of them comes up and they, they, they grab Jesus' disciples and say, we want to talk to Jesus. Uh, and Jesus says to them, basically, all right, I'm here to die. And if you want to follow me, you need to prepare to die as well. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Uh, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified... Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, this is your word, and I pray that you would make it plain to us this morning and that you would uh, use it uh, to point us to your son. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, what we often think Jesus has come to do and what Jesus has actually come to do don't always uh, match up. So what I want us to look at this morning are simply two things, uh, what we want Jesus to do and what Jesus has come to do. What we want Jesus to do and what Jesus has come to do. First of all, what we want Jesus to do. Uh, Our text this morning records uh, the triumphal entry, uh, what we celebrate today as as Palm Sunday, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to attend the Passover feast. Uh, and as he comes into town, the crowds are lining the roads. Now, keep in mind, there are probably two to three million people uh, in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so these crowds are lining the street as Jesus comes into town. And they take palm branches and they're waving the palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Um, Now, to help you get an idea of what this was probably like, think about a parade for a returning war hero. Uh, Those of you who who your football team has some kind of walk for the players before the big game, think of how the fans line the corridor and the players come down through there and everybody's giving them high fives and they got the shakers coming. Well, think of that and just raise that several notches. Uh, The people are there. They're waving the palm branches. They're shouting Hosanna. Uh, and you might ask, what's up with the palm branches? Why are they, why are they waving palm branches? And if they came uh, to one of our football games, they might say, what's up with the shakers? Why are you waving those? They would think we're just as weird as we think they are. In the Old Testament, waving palm branches uh, was actually something that, was, uh, that the people were required to do at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and so they, they had this habit of doing this. And then during the period between the Old and New Testaments, Uh, Israel was invaded and the temple was actually desecrated. Uh, And finally, a man drove the invaders out of Jerusalem. And when he did this, they had the ticker tape parade. They had a big parade in his honor. And everybody got together for the parade and they sang, they had music, and they pulled out the palm branches. They waved palm branches. Uh, And so palm branches had become something of of a national symbol. Later when Israel would revolt against the Romans, they would make their own money, own coins, and they would put palm branches on them as a symbol of their nation. Uh, Imagine if South Carolina was under enemy occupation uh, and the leader that we hoped was going to free us all was riding into town. What might we do? We might line the streets with the palmetto flags and wave them uh, in excitement at this leader who was going to to, to free us, to throw off the enemy oppression. Think about the Jews in this day. The Roman oppression, uh, they want that oppression to be done with. They want to be liberated from the Romans. It's also the Passover. Now, what are they celebrating at Passover? Well, they're celebrating deliverance from a foreign oppressor when they were actually in Egypt and were delivered from the Egyptians. So you've got, we want to get out from under the Romans, We're celebrating the time when we got out from under the Egyptians. And then Jesus comes riding into town. 
They've seen the signs and the wonders that he's done. The text tells us uh, that what has just happened is that he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so there's people coming with him that saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And they're telling everybody else what he's done. And so this huge crowd is forming to see Jesus. Is he the one? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that's going to liberate us? Maybe it is him. Hosanna, which means... Uh, save now. Give salvation now. It's the king. It's the hero. It's our time. It's our time. And so they're praising Jesus. Uh, they're excited about Jesus because they'd seen or they had heard what he had done for Lazarus. And now they want him to do something for them. They're expecting him to do something for them. They're expecting him to lead them to victory over Rome. That's what they're expecting of Jesus at this moment. So here's a question for you. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What are you expecting Jesus to do for you? Uh, there's a lot of things we could, we could, a lot of ways we can answer that. Uh, some of us might want Jesus to, to baptize our political agenda and lead us to victory to take back America. We want Jesus for our political power. Uh, some of us want Jesus for fire insurance. You know, he's not really at the center of our lives, but just in case, I might want to make that decision for Jesus. Uh, some of us want a Jesus who will bring us joy and prosperity, who's going to wipe all the sadness away from our lives, take away all the difficulties. Others want exciting Jesus. And so we want our religion to make a big splash and a lot of noise. We want to wave our flags pumped up for Jesus. Uh, some of us want, us want Jesus just to give us chicken soup for our souls. Just give me some sayings, some platitudes that help me kind of cope with life, help me feel better, something I can put on the refrigerator and look at every day. Uh, many of us are thinking, if not saying, Jesus, I'll follow you if... Uh, and, and whatever's in the blank, the thing in the blank, that's the thing we expect Jesus to do for us. And that, at the end of the day, is the God we really serve. Now, others of us have heard, well, you know, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But we're figuring out the plan that he has in mind isn't really the wonderful plan we had in mind. And it doesn't feel very wonderful at the moment. Uh, we expected to get something from Jesus. We expected if we followed him, life was going to turn out a certain way. Maybe you even feel like Jesus is kind of taunting you this morning. That he's kind of standing in front of you holding something and saying, you can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What are you expecting Jesus to do for you? Well, there's our expectation and there's what Jesus came to do. What did he come to do? You know, the first clue that Jesus isn't going to live up to the crowd's expectations is in the fact that he comes riding in the town on the colt of a donkey. I mean, that's, that's not what the conquering hero does. He comes riding into town on a stallion. He doesn't come riding into town on the colt of a donkey. It's not a, especially not a small donkey that would be so small that your knees are kind of up in your face to keep your feet from dragging the ground. It's not a very dignified way to enter town. What's this about? Uh, the text tells us that Jesus is actually fulfilling prophecy in doing this. 
Uh, he's fulfilling prophecy from the book of Zechariah. He's taking it and applying it to himself. It was a messianic prophecy. But if you go back and actually look at the text there, you see that it refers to a gentle king. Uh, a king who's associated with the ending of war. A king who brings peace to the nations. Uh, chapter 13 of Zechariah even talks about a king who will open a fountain to cleanse the people from sin and uncleanliness. The Messiah had come. And so the crowd, in, in one respect, they're right. Uh, they're right to praise him. They're right to be excited uh, that he's there. They're right to call him king. But they don't know why he's there. They think he's come to save the day. They think he's come to lead them to victory, make them prosperous. Uh, verse 16 tells us that at the time, Jesus' disciples don't quite get it yet either. They don't know what's going on. Nobody quite gets it. Well, then verse 20 tells us some people want to talk to Jesus, and they, so they seek out Andrew and Philip, and uh, they go and find Jesus. And, and this is what he says. Listen to verse three, 23 again. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then later in verse 32, he'll add, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so Jesus basically tells him, look, I've, I've come to die. Jesus had come to die not to lead a revolution. He'd come to carry a cross, not to wear a crown. Uh, he didn't come to live a life of honor and ease. He came to live a life of dishonor and suffering. Uh, at the heart of his kingdom was a crucifixion. That's not what people wanted. They wanted somebody who was going to turn the nation around. They wanted an example to follow. They wanted somebody who was going to flex his muscle and restore their power and prestige. Uh, but Jesus says, like a grain that falls to the ground, that has to fall to the ground and die in order for fruit to be produced, Jesus himself has to die in order to bring about a harvest. Jesus has to die for his people to live. Jesus has to be lifted up on the cross and crucified. See, the, the cross says to you and I that, that we have a more fundamental problem than uh, needing a good leader or a better job or leadership skills or whatever it is to feel good about ourselves, whatever it is. The cross tells me that there's something wrong with me, something so wrong with me that I actually deserve to die for it. That as one who was made to, to serve and to love God, I have rebelled against that. And we've all rebelled against that. And so the result is what we have in this world. A world that's very, that's gone wrong, you might say. G.J. Chesterton uh, one time was responded to, to a, a, a question in the paper. You were supposed to write in and say what you thought was wrong with the world. And so he wrote into the paper and he said simply, Dear sirs, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I am. The cross says I deserve to die, that I'm what's wrong with the world. 
But the cross also says that God has loved me to such an extent that he sent his son to rescue me. Uh, Justice had to be served. But if God was going to forgive sin and justice was going to be served, he couldn't simply say, well, never mind. Don't worry about it. Well, you get a deer over for that one. And so he sent his son. Uh, And Jesus, even though his soul was troubled, even though his soul was weighed down at the thought of what he had to do, he went to the cross and underwent hell itself for the sins of his people. And so Jesus' death is intended to rescue us from death. It's the means of rescuing us from death. Uh, and, and if you think about it, the reason we're dying in the first place uh, is our decision to go our own way instead of going God's way. Now, if you get that, then verse 25 will make more sense to you. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says, I've come to die for you, but he also says, I've come to kill you. I've come to die for you, but I've come to kill you. The you that wants the world to revolve around you, that you's got to go. Because I've not just come to free you from sin, I've come to free you from you. You are what's wrong with the world, and I've got to free you from you if you're ever going to live. Here's what I think we all try to do. We're all running around trying to desperately connect ourselves to the things of this world in order to find life, in order to find joy, in order to find happiness, in order to find my best life now. I'm looking for something to connect myself to. And Jesus says, if you stay on that path, you're never going to find life. If you keep trying to save your life in those ways, by looking to these false sources of life, at the end of the day, what you're going to do instead of saving your life is you're actually going to lose your life while you're trying to save your life. Why? Because none of the things you're trying to connect yourself to can actually give you life. They can't change what's wrong with you. And in your obsession over finding life in them, you're missing the one true source of life, which is the cross of Christ. Uh, think about it this way. It's like you're in this room with no air. Right, you're trapped in a room with no air. And these oxygen masks are dropping down out of the ceiling. And every time you grab one, take a deep breath, and the oxygen flows for about 10 seconds, and then it's gone. And you run on the next one, and you pull it down, and you inhale all the air, and it's gone. Until finally, you die. You're running around the room trying to save your life. Money, power, possessions success, relationship. You're, you're running around trying to save your life. You're taking a breath of air, and it lasts for a second, but then it's gone. You're trying to save your life, but you lose your life because you never come to the thing that can actually give you life. And Jesus says, you've got to, you've got to hate that life, that life of trying to find life in created things. You've got to hate that life And come to me and draw life from me. Draw forgiveness from me. Draw holiness from me. Turn from your idols and turn 
to me. Put your faith in me. And verse 26, Jesus says, follow me. Serve me. See, when, when somebody becomes and there's this, there's this initial turning to Christ, this, this turning from self and this turning to Jesus, where you say, you know what, I'm going to rest in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And I'm going to, I'm going to turn from my idols. I'm going to turn from my self-centeredness. I see that that's, that's, that's wrong, that's rebellion. I'm going to turn from that, and I'm going to follow Christ. But then you have to do that day after day after day after day because you have no idea at the beginning of your Christian life how deeply that self-centeredness is rooted in you. And Jesus wants to kill it. Jesus wants to kill that self-centeredness that is within us. So if you're going to follow him, prepare to die. That's what he says. If you're going to follow me, Prepare to die. But understand, and I think we can get, oh, it's not a death with no reason. It's a death that brings you life. It's a death that brings you a new you, a remade you, the you that you were always meant to be, restored to the image of the one you were made to know. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot put it like this. All right, long Elizabeth Elliot quote, so, so. Go with me. The growth of all living green things wonderfully represents the process of receiving and relinquishing, gaining and losing, living and dying. The seed falls into the ground, dies as the new shoot springs up. There must be a splitting and breaking in order for a bud to form. The calyx lets go of the flower. The petals must curl up and die in order for the fruit to form. The fruit falls, splits, relinquishes the seed. The seed falls into the ground. There is no ongoing spiritual life without this process of letting go. At the precise point where we refuse, growth stops. If we hold tightly to anything given to us, unwilling to let it go when the time comes to let it go, or unwilling to allow it to be used as the giver means it to be used, we stunt the growth of the soul. It is easy to make a mistake here. If God gave it to me, we say, it's mine, I can do what I want with it. No. The truth is, it is ours to thank Him for, and ours to offer back to Him, ours to relinquish, ours to lose, ours to let go of, if we want to find our true selves, if we want real life, if our hearts are set on glory. Think of the self that God has given us as an acorn. It's a marvelous little thing, a perfect shape, perfectly designed for its purpose, perfectly functional. Think of the grand glory of an oak tree. God's intention when he made the acorn was the oak tree. His intention for us is the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Many deaths must go into reaching that measure, many letting goes. When you look at the oak tree, you do not feel the loss of the acorn is a very great loss. When you look at the oak tree... You don't feel the loss of the acorn is a very great loss. The more you perceive God's purpose in your life, the less terrible the losses seem. Or, uh, if if you like shorter quotes from C.S. Lewis, uh, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. 
Submit to death the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Look for yourself, look for yourself, and you will find hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and along with him, everything else thrown in. See, what what we want to say is, Jesus, I want you to ride into the Jerusalem of my life. And here's the blueprint. And here's what I want you to to make of my life. Here's how I want you to fix my life. Get busy at that, please, sir. But Jesus hasn't come to do that. He's come to shape you into something more wonderful than you could ever imagine. He's come to make you a person who forgets about yourself and who loves God and who loves your neighbor, someone who rejoices in God, someone who's excited about God, someone who actually wants a relationship with a God of the universe. But making you into that person involved his dying for you. And now it involves his death being worked out in you. Him pruning us like we're a we're a, a giant hedge that's out of control, and he's pruning and shaping and making it into something beautiful, as painful as it may be. He's making it into something beautiful. Uh, some of you might remember uh, a song of several years ago by the Jones and me. I want to read just a few of the lines. I'm not. I'm not going to sing it. Oh, he says no. All right. Uh, We all want something beautiful. I wish I was beautiful. Mr. Jones and me tell each other fairy tales, stare at the beautiful women. She's looking at you. Oh, no, no, she's looking at me. Smiling in the bright lights, coming through in stereo. When everybody loves you, you can never be lonely. I will paint my picture Paint myself in blue and red and black and gray. All of the beautiful colors are very, very meaningful. When everybody loves me, I will never be lonely. I want to be a lion. Everybody wants to pass as cats. We all want to be big, big stars. But we've got different reasons for that. Mr. Jones and me staring at the video. When I look at the television, I want to see me staring big stars but we don't know why and we don't know how but when everybody loves me I'm going to be just about as happy as I can be there's this ache uh, this longing of the human heart to be happy to know you're beautiful to be loved the cross tells you you are loved more love than you can ever imagine the cross tells you that jesus came to make you beautiful but in order to become beautiful 
the you that you're trying so hard to hold on to, that you has got to die. O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Let me pray for us. Father, it's a hard, a wonderful thing that you call us to. And sometimes we see the hardness much more than we see the wonder of it. And so I pray, Father, that you would show us just what you are about in our lives. In sending Jesus for us. In working death in us even. So that we might really taste and see and enjoy eternal life. That we might be the people you made us to be. Father, would you be gentle with us? Um, but would you shape us, and would you make us great lovers of you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.